it's the caterpillar, the ugly, gross caterpillar crawling along the twig that looks up at the butterfly and goes, oh my God, if I could only be that, if I could only fly, if I could only be beautiful like that, wouldn't life be perfect? Wouldn't life be amazing? Not knowing the whole time that they are that butterfly. All they have to do is learn to go within, build some self-awareness, create your own chrysalis, sit still, listen to the sound of your breath, quiet your mind, give yourself permission to dream again, write down your goals, a one-year, a three-year, and a five-year plan. Get as specific as you possibly can. I'm Doug Bobst personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Khalil Rafati. Khalil is the founder of the renowned smoothie bar and juice chain, Sun Life Organics. Khalil possesses one of the most insane and inspiring recovery stories that I have ever encountered. In Khalil's darkest moments, he found himself hopeless and homeless on Skid Row in LA. Miraculously, he managed to crawl his way out of that difficult situation, seek treatment, and ultimately find sobriety. Through his relentless pursuit of personal growth, finding purpose, and self-discovery, Khalil has attained nearly two decades of sobriety and is living the life of his dreams. However, his recovery journey has not always been easy, and we dive deep into that today. Today on the show, we explore Khalil's gripping story, tracing his path from homelessness on Skid Row to achieving long-term sobriety. We also chat about what early sobriety looked like for Khalil and how his responsibility for caring for his dying mother provided the necessary focus for his recovery. Khalil also shares why he believes being an addict is a superpower and credits it for his ability to build the empire of Sun Life Organics without any formal education or experience. We also get into his healing journey, including how he transformed his relationship with external validation and fame and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Khalil Rafati to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Khalil, welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I'm looking forward to diving into your story and just diving into to you because I'm really fascinated by everything that you've overcome, everything that you've achieved, your sobriety. You're coming up on two decades of recovery, which is incredibly crazy. impressive. Crazy. Yeah. And I know when you got sober, you became like Khalil 2.0, where that was a massive transformation in your life. But what I'm interested in finding out is like, when did you become like Khalil, like 3.0? Like when did the next level of uh, healing come for you? That change came like all change came in my life. I'm just not one of those people that ever acts out of inspiration. I act out of desperation. I greatly lack willpower and I am not a strong person. I'm just not one of those people that is highly and naturally motivated. Like we were just talking about one of our friends prior to you hitting record, like that kid was a drummer and I think he was 10 years old. He borrowed one of his dad's guitars, locked himself in his room, taught himself to play guitar, played guitar eight to 10 hours a day, seven days a week, didn't tell anybody, and then just walked out one day and he was like, I'm a guitar player. And that's Dwayne Betts, who's one of the greatest guitar players on the planet. That was never me. I was terrible at sports. 
terrible at school. I got kicked out of three schools, never even finished high school. So the moment came when my mother called me out of the blue. She was in her late 60s and she delivered the news. I was eight months sober, eight and a half months sober. And she delivered the news to me that she had she had cancer and it was bad and it wasn't looking good. I reacted like, you know, I think many men would react like not emotional, like, oh, okay, well, you know, just do what the doctors say and uh, all right, I'll call you soon. And got off the phone and my friend who I was eating with, Sean, said, everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, fine. You know, shove the emotions down, shove the emotions down. But when he dropped me off that night at his guest house, he was letting me stay in his guest house at that time while his main house was under construction. He had a a decent sized guest house, no electricity, but it did have running water. Went back to that guest house and I did what I did every evening. I lit my candle because there was no electricity. And I started thinking about what my mom said. And I had no money to send her. I couldn't help her. I didn't even have enough money to go visit her. And it was early recovery for me. So I was a lot, you know, a lot of shucking and jiving, a lot of bullshitting, a lot of people pleasing, wearing masks, trying to impress people, chasing newcomers. And I just fucking broke. I snapped in half. I started crying. And the crying kind of became one of those cries that like, it becomes so uncontrollable that it started to scare me. And I started punching myself in my leg. Like, you know, you fucking idiot, you fucking piece of shit. Like you fucking loser. I just kept punching myself in my leg, which is something that I did when I was really upset at myself. And, uh, I cried myself out. I don't know what time it was probably three, four five o'clock in the morning when I finally stopped crying. And I just like, got on my knees and folded my hands like they taught me in grade school. And I was like, God, please, 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 God, please, please, please. I don't ever want to feel like this again. Like I'm I'm, I'm never going to be poor again. I'm never going to be a fucking loser again. I'm never going to like, and then I was just like, I'm going to be rich. Like I'm going to be fucking rich. I'm going to be able to take care of my mom no matter what. I'm going to be able to take care of like, if I get a girlfriend someday, I want to take care of her. And like, I'm going to have nice shit. And I just, I basically like made a vow to myself, which I didn't know I was doing at the time, but I made a vow that I would never feel like that again. I would never feel like a broke loser piece of shit again. And the next day I just, went out, like literally raised my hand at 12 step meetings and said, I need work. I need work. I'll do anything. And people were great. People were like this gay couple, Chris and Glenn, they were like, Hey, we need a housekeeper. Can you clean our townhouse? And I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm amazing at cleaning. I was washing people's cars. I was walking people's dogs and I just did anything and everything that was put in front of me. And that just, the little snowball just became like an avalanche and you know, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but that was the moment, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And that was the new version, the version that you see in front of you today emerged out of, out of that filth, out of that mud, out of that muck up came the Lotus. Yeah. What's interesting about your story is you've mentioned that you obviously had problems in school, convicted felon, jail, you know, had a lot of debauchery growing up, which we're going to talk about like the the comeback story here in a little bit. But like, how did you develop like a lot of these skills that are needed to build this empire that you built with Sun Life Organics? Because I mean, you built this thing that is a, a massive conglomerate and it's it's very well known across the country. And like I just said, like you didn't have a lot of skills to start with. Well, a couple things. Addiction is a superpower. 
it's just not known as a superpower. People think of addiction as bad or shameful or like there's something wrong with somebody if they're an addict. I used to think that way. I remember like hearing about people smoking crack or, or hearing about junkies and like not the cool ones, not the Sid Vicious's and the Jim Morrison's, but like, you know, street junkies. I would be like, what a loser, what a piece of shit or like people smoking crack. Like what's wrong with them? If it's so bad for them, why are they doing it? Well, <laughs> little did I know that I would become that and much, much worse than probably most of them ever alive on the planet. So I think addiction is a superpower. So I have addiction. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it, you know if it's epigenetic imprinting or if, if Gabor Mate's philosophies are real, that it was the trauma that I faced as a child, the sexual abuse, the neglect, the violence. I went through all that shit, but I don't know, man. I got high because it felt great and I'm selfish. So I don't know where the addiction came from. I don't really care. All I know is, is if you're an addict, you got a fucking superpower. And if you don't know that, you need to know that. You need to recognize that. You need to own that. The only difference of me now and me back then is I changed up the ingredients, right? I changed up the motivation. I changed up the target. I changed up the goal. I go at success, fitness, finance, love, intimacy in the same way I went after getting well for those of you who used to be an opiate addict or, you know, I chase success and an amazing life in the same way that I chase the needle and the spoon and the crack pipe and all that shit. Secondly, I would say if you are an addict, you got to be really, really good at communicating in order to sustain your habit. So you learn shit on the street that you could never learn in college. You learn how to size someone up immediately. You literally learn how to look at somebody and size them up. You have to know, because a lot of those people will take your life from you for $5 if you're really on the streets. So I learned to communicate. I learned to barter. I learned to bargain. I learned to negotiate. I learned all that shit on the streets. Lastly, when I was in my 20s, I remember very specifically being at my friend Chris's house and his girlfriend and her friends were all talking and they were all Columbia, Harvard, Georgetown. And I'm like fucking high school dropout, you know, loser. And uh, this is before my life derailed, but I'm sitting with all these fancy people and they're saying these words that I had no fucking idea what they were even talking about. I'm like, how do these people talk like this? So at that time, I was on Second Street in Santa Monica and uh, I walked past a movie theater. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was an art house movie theater. It was Lemley's Fourplex. And the only reason I stopped because this girl on this movie poster was like the most beautiful girl ever. It was actually Penelope Cruz and it was her first movie. I don't know how to pronounce it. It was called like Abella Peck. It's in like, I think it's in Italian or French or something. And I was bored. I had nothing to do. So I went up to the ticket guy, you know, I was like, when does that movie start? He's like, it starts in 20 minutes. And I'm like, cool. I went in and I watched it. But when it started, it, it had the, they were talking another language. I was like, I'm like, what the fuck? Like in Ohio, we didn't have that, you know? And I'm like, what the fuck? But then I noticed that there were subtitles. And so I'm like trying to watch the movie, but like read the subtitles and watch the movie and read the subtitles and watch the movie. So I went back to see that movie, I think seven times because I couldn't follow along at first, but by the fifth time, I knew exactly what was going on. I was able to read all the subtitles. And then I became, because I'm an addict, 
I became obsessed with foreign films and I started to go watch any foreign film. I didn't care. It could be in any language. And then I discovered that Blockbuster had a foreign film section and I literally went from A to Z and then from Z to A and I watched every single foreign film. Essentially, I learned how to read. Not that I couldn't read, but I learned to love reading. And from there, it was sort of a natural progression to discovering Albert Camus and discovering Herman Hesse and discovering all these amazing books because cute girls hung out at bookshops back then on Third Street Promenade. So I used to go up and down Third Street Promenade. I would hang out. The, they were like bookstore slash coffee shops. And I would, you know, everyone had a book. I want to fit in. So I learned to read. And that's also how I developed my, my vocabulary and my ability to communicate. The, I don't have any talent. I don't have any skills. The only thing I know how to do is communicate. I can spot greatness in people. So I was able to hire some awesome people to run my company. But I have over 300 employees, probably closer to 400, but I stopped counting and have an amazing corporate team, but I don't do anything. I do big picture stuff, like I do recipes and I do new locations and I get billionaires to give me money to open up more businesses. <laughs> but I have a real knack for communicating with wealthy, successful, powerful people. They just appreciate the authenticity, that's all. So I don't know, that's how. I wish I could take credit for the empire. I came up with a great idea and I hired some amazing people to execute my vision. That's amazing. That's, that's so cool that you were just so self-taught and that you pretty much have just used a lot of your experiences from your days in addiction, as well as what you've learned since then to be able to you know, teach yourself all these skills and then build something uh, meaningful by essentially, like you said, learning to communicate effectively with, with people, which is, again, was self-taught. I want to go into like fame because I know that fame is going to be incredibly addicting and attention and stuff like that. And I know you've obviously built a big name for yourself. You've built a massive brand. Have you struggled with like being addicted to the external validation or the fame that comes with a lot of it you've done over the years? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue, and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% .9 of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotics stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Now back to the show. Yeah. I mean, being from Ohio, I'm pretty fascinated with fame in general. It's very, very popular in places like Los Angeles and New York and even here in Austin, Texas to, to say things like, you know, I don't care about famous people. They're just like everybody else. No, they're not. 
No, they're not. They wouldn't be famous if they were just like everybody else, number one. And number two, the people who proclaim they don't give a shit about famous people, fucking Danny Bonaducci will walk in and they'll piss their pants in front of them. Or like the most mundane, non-famous person will walk in and those same people that were claiming they didn't care about fame will freak the fuck out and lose their shit and start acting like an idiot. Listen, we all love famous people. That's why they're famous, right? Certain people like Dwayne, who we were talking about earlier, for the most part, pretty unaffected. Like I've been with Dwayne and met some of the biggest, most famous people in the world. And he was so normal. It was almost unnerving, you know, like he, it meant nothing to him. Ben Harper, Jack Johnson, uh, the Black Crows. Well, anyway, I don't want to be an LA douchebag name dropper, but some people are less affected by it. I'm super impressed with famous people and I love being around famous people. And I'm not embarrassed to say that. I would rather just be transparent about it. I'm friends with quite a few famous people that have done things that are so mind-blowingly amazing. And I love to learn from them. I love to be around them. I'm very careful not to talk about what they do for a living, but as a result, sooner or later, they sort of share a little bit with you that you normally wouldn't hear about. In my own personal attachment to fame, yeah, I was one of those idiots that ran out, got the gold Rolex and got the Range Rover and did all that stuff. But I'm pretty self-aware and I learned pretty quickly that that stuff doesn't mean a whole lot. It's cool. It's nice. I like shiny things. I love necklaces. I have a bunch of different necklaces, but like I love crystals. I love the energy of crystals. So it's not that I don't love shiny things anymore, but when the book took off and the New York Times did their article about me and I, and I wound up on the front page, I definitely, I definitely turned into a bit of an asshole for about 18 months, I would say. I definitely started to buy my own press and think that maybe I was part of some special group of people that breathe some special rarefied air. You know, it was, it was, it was weird. It was a very weird experience. I mean, I had a couple, I had two authors, not one. I had two authors that I just absolutely fucking loved. Like I, I looked up to them. I, I loved their writing style and not one of them, but both of them, and one emailed me and one DM'd me. And it was such a surreal experience that I literally thought both of the experiences were fake. They weren't. I eventually found out they weren't fake. It's a strange thing to go from an absolute nobody to being a multimillionaire and having a best-selling book and having a chain of health food cafes and having a yoga studio and, and, and a recovery center and whatever the fuck else I did a little humble bragging in there, but no, just to give you some, you know, some perspective to go from living under a bridge and being penniless and panhandling to that. Yeah, it was fucking weird. It was, it definitely, there was definitely an adjustment period. Being in Austin helps a lot because that stuff is way, way, way less important here in Austin. And there's much less pressure here in Austin to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah, that all makes sense. And it definitely makes sense as far as like the adjustments of when you're, you're going from living like under a bridge and 
being heavily addicted to drugs and now making all this money, being around all these notable people, having so much success, having a lot of people just reaching out to you and getting attention from that, because I'm sure it even had to be even more addicting because you were neglected as a kid. So now you're getting an exorbitant amount of attention. Yes. Yes. You're like, oh my gosh, like, this is so awesome. Like, where has this been all of my life? Like, how did you end up like transforming your relationship with that, with that side of things? By taking advantage of it sometimes and abusing it sometimes and getting, what's that saying where you get too far over your skis? Like there was a couple of times, I'm not going to mention his name, but somebody very, very, very famous who literally walked into Sun Life Organics and walked right up to me and goes, you know, like, oh my God, you're the guy. And I'm like, like shitting myself. Like, I'm like, I'm the guy. I'm like, you're the fucking guy. He's like, no, 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 you're the guy. And anyway, we had this kind of like instant bonding. Like when you met Dwayne, I had a very similar thing with this very, very recognizable, famous actor guy. I think it was about like a year later. It was when all this stuff was happening and we were at a UFC fight and I really wanted pictures with Conor McGregor and with, cause they were all walking up to him, all of them, Conor McGregor, John Jones, all of them. And so I would say like, Hey, do you guys want a picture with him? I'll here, <laughs> give me your phone. I'll take a picture. Not cause I was a great guy and not cause I was looking out for them because what do you think my next question was? Can I get a oh, picture? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know I was doing it and I was very wound up and full of myself and I think it was the second fight that we were at together. We were on our way home. He would always fly home after the fights or they would fly him home on their jet after the fights because he didn't want to stick around Vegas. And he just very like looked me in the eyes and he goes, hey man, don't do that. And I'm like, what? He's like, you know what? Don't do that. I don't like pictures with people. I've never asked you to ask other people if I could take pictures with them. I know why you're doing it and I appreciate the hustle but don't fucking do that. And dude, I died because it was like somebody called me on my shit and my ego was exposed. And I think to him, it wasn't as big of a deal as it felt like, but I wanted to crawl inside my shoe and die. Had it been a regular nobody off the street, would I have been as affected? No, I'm man enough to admit that the reason that advice or that chastising held so much weight is because it was coming from somebody who was super famous. And that sort of started a chain reaction of me examining my motives around my behaviors. And then I started thinking to myself, like, these people want to hang out with you because you feed them. And because for the most part, you leave them alone, right? They also probably enjoy the Cinderella aspect of my story. And lastly, they probably really fucking desperately need real friends. And although I believe that maybe 50, 60, I would love to imagine 70% of me really was a real, true, genuine friend, there was certainly 30, 40, at times 50% of me that was just a fucking asshole taking advantage of a situation that I shouldn't have taken advantage of. And so that balloon popped <laughs> and it and it hurt and i remember bringing it up much much later and he didn't even know what i was talking about but inside my head 
this was something that was ongoing that he was spending time thinking about because I think I'm so fucking important that this guy with this huge life is wasting his fucking time thinking about me. No, he didn't care, but it was such a necessary kick in the balls for me that I desperately needed. So it came and it went. And do I, you know, look, I still struggle with humility today for sure. It's definitely a, a bit of an Achilles heel for me. I try my best to remember that I am not better than anyone else. You know what? I struggle with stupid shit today. Like, and I don't know what your view is on this and I'm probably going to get canceled for saying this, but like it's three years after the pandemic and I just went to LA and I see people like double masked, like driving in their car alone. And I, I want to go into this place of like self-righteous indignation. Like, look at this, look at that fucking idiot. You know, but like, like says who, what if that person has full blown AIDS? What if that person has cancer and is fearing that they might get COVID and die? Like that's where I still struggle is with stuff like that. And I have to constantly check myself and remember that I'm no better than anybody. And then also I hang out with some really, really cool people here too. Maybe not quite as famous as my friends in LA, but there's some people that do some really amazing shit here. And sometimes I'll go into a place of less than like, well, I'm not married yet and I don't have kids and, you know, my house isn't that big and I don't live in that neighborhood. So, you know, it's a seesaw, it's a, it's back and forth. And the, the ego always wants to take you out of the present moment and make you feel better than everybody else or worse than everybody else. But the ego never encourages you to realize that we're all fucking equal and we're all struggling. Mm. I think a lot of times what happens is when we're going to judge somebody else for what they're doing, it sometimes comes from a place of like pain, right? Where we're angry at ourselves, we're upset with ourselves or whatever the case may be. And I think at the end of the day, what it does is it gives you like a mirror in a way. It's like, all right, like I clearly need to look within and say like, why is this bothering me so much? Like, what is it about me that this is bothering me so much and what do I need to address inside myself to why this is making me so angry, right? And I think to your other point about just being able to validate yourself in a way that's healthy, how have you been able to do that over the years? I mean, you talked about that wake-up call moment at the UFC fight. You've talked about how life is now in Austin, but you've still gotten a lot of attention. You've built a really successful brand. You're around a lot of notable and famous people. Like, how do you validate yourself internally so that you can have like a healthy relationship with yourself? Early, early mornings are really, really important for me. So like 5 a.m. to 7.30 a.m., that's kind of, that's the time when I'm wrestling with my existential angst or I'm being creative or I'm doing my best to try and sit still and just meditate and breathe. I deal with quite a bit of it. early, early in the morning, I deal with quite a bit of overwhelming sense of impending doom, you know, probably for a multitude of reasons. And it's, it gets better as time goes on. Much to my surprise, the, the watch or the G-Wagon or the girlfriend or the fancy house did not take that stuff away. My mom was in the war and went through hell. My father was in, a, in, in his own hellish war type existence. Maybe some of that stuff has been passed down onto me. Maybe they kind of like impregnated me with their fears and their horrors that they went through. So early morning, it's very important for me to get up early. So it's very important for me to go to bed. 
So I do not go out. One of the most frustrating things for me is telling people over and over and over again, I'm in my pajamas at seven and I'm asleep by nine. And no matter how many times I say that, I still have those same people come up and say, not because they're bad people, they're fucking awesome people. And they want to invite me to awesome stuff. But like, I've probably been asked 200 times over the last two weeks, like, you know, what events are you hitting for South by Southwest? None, you know, like, oh my God, Elon's going to be at so-and-so's and and it's going to be this. It's not that I don't care getting to bed early, getting as much sleep as I possibly can, because sleep is such a fucking panacea. Sleep is, I love exercise and obviously I'm obsessed with exercise, but I'm obsessed with sleep and quality of sleep as well. You know, I track my sleep religiously. I have a plethora of stuff that I've learned from Huberman and, you know, and Ferris and Peter Atia and like all those guys. So getting sound sleep, getting up early in the morning and being alone and just being alone and developing a sense of self-awareness, then I can face the day with a tiny little bit of humility, some enthusiasm, some optimism, and some realism. And once I get going, I go on momentum. And uh, just just like I'm sure you and many of your listeners know, did you ever think to yourself when you needed to score so you could get well, ah, you know what, I'll try tomorrow. No. <laughs> Never. No. It, was, it was, I'm gonna go fucking get well nothing's going to stop me. I will tear apart this sofa and find change. I will panhandle. I will steal my girlfriend's quarter laundry jar. Like, you know, I just fucking go for it. Yeah. You go for it. And then you find a way to rationalize it all making sense in your mind. So even, cause even yep. though like everybody on the outside is like looking at you, like, what are you doing? Like the girlfriend whose jewelry you just stole was like, what the heck are you doing? You're like, what? Like, I need this. I swear. I just, my check didn't cash and I need to pay rent. If you love me, you'll do this. And they're like, meanwhile, in their gut, they know, all right, this person, there's something's going on. But meanwhile, we're like, dude, they definitely believe us. And I'm just going to keep doing what I need to do to do this. And I'm really impressed by like the, the self-awareness and the, and everything that you've developed from getting sober. And I want to talk about like, the early stages. So I know you're coming up on 20 years, but I know like a year or so before you got sober, you purposefully, I think, overdosed and put yourself in a ditch. So talk about that time in your life. What was going on? What was your addictions? What were you addicted to? What was life like then for you? And then like, what was your rock bottom moment? And then how did you finally get sober? There there was so many. I mean, I was addicted predominantly to heroin and cocaine mixed together in the form of a speedball intravenously. Like that was my jam. I fucking loved speedballs. There was nothing that could ever come close. I, I certainly enjoyed shooting coke. I certainly enjoyed shooting heroin, but, and, you know, and smoking crack like cigarettes, but I never got what I got from a speedball. A lot of people die the first time they try a speedball because it speeds up your heart and slows it down at the same time. It's super dangerous. A lot of people have died, many people their first time. So my God, please, please, please don't think I'm glorifying it, but I have to be honest and I have to be transparent. That's what I loved. I drank on occasion and again, smoked crack like cigarettes. It was fucking horrible. The wheels had come off. It was overdose after overdose, seizure after seizure, county hospital to county jail, another seizure, county hospital, county jail, real homelessness, 
not sleeping on my girlfriend's sofa and then stealing her laundry change. But eventually I burned every bridge that was ever extended to me. Real homelessness, downtown LA, Skid Row, also out by Sepulveda and Century and Sepulveda, which is over by the airport. That was a great place to panhandle. Tourists, you know, that didn't know any better are, are very quick to give up a five, a 10, a 20. And then there's also tons of drugs available there. I mean, it was fucking hell. It was uh, it was like a Fellini film mixed with a really bad horror film. There were lots of things that happened that I don't know if they were real or not, you know, but there were times that what I experienced, you know, d- demonic possession and entities attacking me and tearing at me and clawing me definitely intentionally took an overdose and died and was like floating above my body. I hit bottom and then I just took out a shovel and kept digging. And then I hit further bottom and I just took out a pickaxe and and I just kept digging. In the end, when I finally called Bob Forrest, it was, certainly wasn't out of virtue. I just, like to walk from here to my mailbox right now would have been like a real fucking struggle. My mailbox is right there. Like I just physically, I was 109 pounds. My teeth were falling out of my head. I had scabies, I had ringworm. I had picked myself, I had chunks of hair missing. I was filthy. People talk about the picture on my book, I Forgot to Die, like, oh my God, dude, that's so gnarly. That was taken when I had money. Like, I don't share that typically, but since we're talking about the depths of hell, like that picture was taken at Spencer Recovery Center. I was a fucking punk ass, you know, arrogant, had the, had the you know, the cigarette, like piece of my nose was missing, piece of my ear was missing. I still had platinum hair at that time. So obviously I had the money to afford to, to dye my hair. Things got way worse and stinky and gross. And so in the end, it was a series of really, really awful shit stacked very closely together. And a lot of the people that I could always call like every couple months, and then they would let me come over and shower and give me some money or let me borrow their car, borrow their ATM card, all that dried up. So I kind of got to this place where even my mom wouldn't take my calls. And I never in a million years thought that would happen because I could always hit my mom up to Western Union, me a hundred bucks. And that dried up and I knew I was days away from dying. And so I called Bob, Bob Forrest and I was just like, Hey, Penny told me that like, you can help me, you know, get into rehab for free. Like, is that real? And he's like, yeah, come on down to <laughs> music cares. And you're going to meet Buddy Arnold and we'll get y'all squared away. I didn't believe him. You know, I was in a place where I was letting men do shit to my body in exchange for drugs. So I kind of knew that nothing came for free. Right. But fuck, man. Yeah, I, I made it over to to Music Cares. It was called Maps at the time. I made it over to Music Cares and there was Buddy Arnold, fucking legend. He was still alive at the time. And I remember him looking at me. I was so dirty that like he didn't want to deal with me. And then he's like, are you, are you, you a meth addict? And I'm like, no, I'm a junkie. And he's like, let me see your arms. And like, I pulled, you know, I pulled up my sleeves and my hands looked like fucking hamburger meat. I mean, I had abscesses everywhere. And he's like, you're a junkie. All right. He's like, all right, we'll, we'll help them. <laughs> and they call Pasadena recovery center. They convinced Dr. Bloom to take me for, I think, I think Buddy paid Dr. Bloom $1,000. That's what I was worth at the time, <laughs> a thousand bucks. And that was the beginning. That was June 18th. Well, it was actually June 16th, 
2003, my sobriety day is June 18th, 2003. I was heavily medicated for the first couple of days. And that's when I went to Dr. Bloom and I was just like, you know what, man, you got to stop giving me all this fucking shit because if you're just going to keep numbing me out, I'm eventually going to leave and go get the real shit. So like, I need to fucking go through this. And they were like, absolutely not. You could die, you know, blah, blah, blah. And ultimately they made me sign paperwork, AMA, you know, against medical advice. This individual is going to stop taking medication. And I spent the next like three weeks just turning inside out, just turning green, turning blue, turning yellow, shitting the bed, puking on myself, the snot bubbles, just the only thing that would like slow it down a little bit would be cigarettes. So I would just like bumming smokes from people, lighting one off the other and just fucking, you know, that whore, you know, I mean, it's just, it's the worst, but I'll tell you what, I found the grace of God. And I don't mean that in any type of religious sense whatsoever. I found the grace of God in that place out of desperation. I dropped to my knees and I folded my hands and I just said, God, please, please, please. I was crying. I'm like, if you're there, please take this hell away from me. I don't know why I use that word, that wording. And in, in that instant, there was a lifting. There was like a levity to my spirit that hadn't been there. It felt like 5,000 pounds of crushing weight had been lifted. The cravings didn't go away. The withdrawal certainly didn't go away. But there was a knowing that there was something, some creator, something. And I grabbed onto that, like they say in 12-step programs, like a drowning man seizes a life preserver. And I was just like, I'm fucking never going back. I will never never fucking go back. Yeah. I made a vow to myself. It's amazing. That's amazing, man. What a story. Congrats to you on your sobriety and overcome everything that you did. I think a lot of people, they struggle in the initial days of sobriety where the masks come off and now you're faced to deal with yourself in the most raw way possible. You got to deal with your emotions. You got to deal with your traumas. You got to deal with all the pain and there's no more coping mechanism anymore. How did you deal with that in your early days of sobriety, given that you had such a traumatic childhood and that you were such a hardcore like drug user when you were using? You know, there was at Spencer Recovery Center at that time, Bob had just assembled a band of losers. I mean, we were real losers. There was a couple of super famous people in there as well, but goddamn, they stayed away from us. I leaned on these guys. I, well, first of all, I didn't have any, I didn't have cigarettes. I didn't have anything. So like, you know, this kid, Ryan, and this guy, Frankie Violence, and this guy, Jeff, and a few other people, I just leaned on them hard. I just was honest with them. I was just like, I'm fucking scared, man. I want to get high. I want to get high. Seemed like for some reason, so many people with like three days or like 10 days or 30 days, they really got a kick out of saying things like, yeah, man, I don't want to fucking ever do that shit again. Like, I'm good. I'm clean, man. I'm going to stay clean. And I'm like, who the fuck are they trying to kid? Like they've been getting high for 20 years and now they've been in here for a week and they're claiming they're never going to get high again. I was the opposite. I was like, man, I want to get high. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And like my friends would be like, here, have a cigarette. Like, come here, let's fucking strum the guitar. Let, you know, let's sing. Let's, we would like sing some songs or we didn't want to go to meetings, but they made us go to meetings. You know, eventually meetings became somewhat of a panacea as well because there was fellowship there and there was the, the meeting after the meeting, which was always the real magic for me. Had I isolated, had I tried to fight it on my own one-on-one, no fucking chance. I wouldn't have lasted 72 hours. 
And I got to say, here's the fucking craziest thing. There's two things that happen. One, so the guy, Jeff, that I was in treatment with, that would he always had cigarettes. He had money still somehow. He would always give me cigarettes and he would always play the guitar and he would always like do these cover songs in this like country twang because he, he was ironically enough from Austin, Texas. So I bought this brand new house, but I gutted it and I made it like a palace. I did like indoor sauna, outdoor sauna, steam shower, whatever. Jeff is the guy that did all the work for me. Wow. Almost 20 years later. Yeah. We ended up meeting up again here in Austin. He hit me up on Facebook and he was like, dude, are you in Austin? Are you really here? And I'm like, yeah, I own a business here. And he came to see me and he fucking started crying and I started crying and he introduced me to his wife. And like, it's amazing. Frank Violence, the guy I was making a reference to, it's not his real last name, obviously. Frank was texting me this morning. In fact, busting my balls, making fun of me, asking me like, he was showing me pictures of the original. There's this meme where it's the original Top Gun with the hot blonde girl that was in it and Tom Cruise then, and then it shows them now. And like, you know, she's a lady in her sixties. Like she looks like a grandma and Tom Cruise looks like a fucking stud. So Frank sent that to me and he's like, be honest, you still would, wouldn't you? <laughs> and of course I had myself a laugh and then I fucking asked him how living in the trailer park was. He doesn't live in the trailer park, but that was our ongoing joke there. So just camaraderie, fellowship, laughter, mostly laughter, and eventually 12-step meetings. Mm, that's incredible, yeah. man. So like you mentioned, obviously, 12-step meetings. You mentioned um, like laughter. You talked about like how just action and acquiring like knowledge along the way helped you get to where you are today. Was there ever a moment throughout this process where you felt that like because you had so much success along the way that that became like a way from you to escape, to deal with some of the deeper stuff that you had gone through during your childhood that impacted you as an adult? So you're talking about current life now and then the, like the sort of meteoric rise, which really wasn't a meteoric rise, but you mean that. Well, right? I'm, I guess what I mean is, um, have you found, like you've mentioned that you've used laughter and that you've gone to the 12-step meetings and that you've did what you needed to do to become successful today? Like, was there ever a point where you felt like, the success, like just going to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing became an addiction in a way that it prevented oh. you from like healing some of the stuff from your childhood. There's certainly a component of that, but I will tell you the Byron Katie stuff. I don't know if you ever got into the Byron Katie stuff that really peeled back some layers of the onion. There's a, at least a dozen books that opened me wide up and allowed me to dive in and heal some of that stuff. Now, I guess to answer your question more specifically, did I avoid some of that stuff and just go for the success and said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were things up until my 17th year in recovery, there were definitely some deep, deep wounds that I would try to shop my way out of or whatever. Yeah. Become more successful and, and avoid them. It was right around 17 years, about almost three years ago where I decided I'm going to try some different modalities of healing now. And I feel safe enough and I feel in a good enough place to where I can start to experiment with some different modalities of healing beyond 12 steps, Byron Katie, power of now, Kabbalah, TM, yoga. Like I definitely exhausted quite a few different modalities of healing up until that point. 
But at a certain point, I had to make a decision if I really, really, truly wanted to dive deep and exercise that trauma out of me, which I was able to do. And that was another very prolific experience. Was there a specific moment that triggered this yearning for more self-discovery? I had some people who I really loved and cared about turn on me. And my mom was dying at the same time. And I had one friend in particular who I knew would have my back no matter what. And actually it was completely the opposite. I was just like, fuck this. Like I had, I had had midlife crises, right? Where you go out, you get the certain car, you get the certain watch or whatever men do stupid shit that we do to try to stave off the inevitable or, or face the inevitable that this life is transitory and, and brief. And, <laughs> but this was different. This was more of like a, a, a midlife collapse. I decided fuck LA, you know, Malibu specifically, like fuck this place. I'm going to, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go someplace where nobody knows me. I just want to have a peaceful life. I'm going to go paddleboard every day and do yoga and just like be semi-retired and I don't need to open up any more stores. It was right around that time where I was like, or, <laughs> I mean, I did, I left, but like, or you could really dive deep and try something different. And the reason I'm not being specific is I don't want to lead anybody down a path, especially somebody in early recovery. I chose to do something at 17 years sober that I would not suggest any, I wouldn't suggest it to anybody because I'm not a fucking therapist. I'm not a doctor. I knew myself well enough to know that for the most part, I felt like I'd say I, I was like 80% confident that I could go and have this experience. I think you can use your imagination to what I'm talking about and come out of it. Okay. Before, We've talked about it on here before. It's okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. I felt called that there was more. I felt like there was like a veil that I needed to like remove and it was weird shit. I'd be sitting like this at my computer and like a fucking blackbird would just randomly come up and land on my fountain and start screaming at me. And I was like, God, that's fucking weird. And then I would go for my morning hike. This is back when I was in California. And like, I saw a massive rattlesnake with a rabbit half in and half out with like the legs hanging out and like a dumbass. I walked up to it. And the fucking thing's like looking at me and I'm looking at it and looking at me. And then all of a sudden it like did the, you know, that, you know, with the tail, basically like back off motherfucker, or I'm going to kill you. I kept seeing three hawks. I kept seeing these signs. And this is when I was kind of wrestling with the idea. And it's like, look, I don't have any compulsion to escape from my life right now. I love my girl. I love my business. I love everything about my life. Even though I went through the dark night of my soul, I don't want to run away. I just want to know why, like, why do I care so much? Why is this so, why am I so wounded because these people turned on me? I'm sure a lot of it was jealousy. None of them had anything meaningful going on in their lives. They were broke. One of them had like a GoFundMe page. And I'm not even saying they didn't have a little bit of motivation to turn on me. You know, I'm a loud mouth. I don't have a filter. I make jokes I shouldn't make. But why was I so wounded? And what the fuck was going on with the situation with my mom? Like, why was this such a big event? Like, my mom was a shitty mom. We had a horrible relationship. Later in life, I was able to be the hero in my own journey. 
and go and rescue my mom, get her to retire, bought her a house. She beat the cancer, by the way. I forgot to tell your, your listeners, but she beat the cancer. But I was able to take care of my mom the last 17 years of her life in a very profound way. I spoiled the shit out of my mom. So I got to be the hero in my own journey. Why am I so busted up over my mom dying? And I knew that there was shit that was unresolved. And so I went and I worked with a very highly, highly, highly recommended shaman. I hate to use that word because it's so overused. And I had the most cathartic moment of my life. And I got to see things that I never saw before. And the veils were lifted. All of the veils were lifted. Kind of like when the famous dude called me on my shit for saying, hey, do you want to take a picture with him? Kind of like that, but times a thousand. Everything was exposed. It was me talking to my soul, me talking to God, me talking to the people that had hurt me as a child, and me talking to my mom's soul and asking her questions and getting real answers. That was a big, big shift for me. That was like a, a whole nother Khalil 4.0. I mean, that was kind of like, wow, I get it. Like there really is a God and this is all, it's temporary, but it's also infinite at the same time. And it was fucking amazing. But again, I would never, I would never recommend anybody going and doing something like that because most people that are in recovery have not found their dream job, their dream partner, their dream situation. Like my house is paid for, my car is paid for. I don't have pressure on me. I have people that run my company. I don't have to do anything. I can go to Bali right now for a month, or I could go to go to Jackson Hole and visit Dwayne and, you know, maybe sing some songs. Like that's a very privileged position to be in. And I worked for it. I worked very hard for it. And God bless me with that. But when I was in my early sobriety, fuck, man, how many times did something that I perceived as bad happening to where my mind didn't go, you know, would make this better? You know, how about it? Go get a fucking 20 rock or how about, you know, take a handful of Vicodin that's in the medicine cabinet because your girlfriend had dental surgery. Like I would never want to suggest it to anybody because I would never want anyone to fall into harm's way. Listen, people die. People die. People go crazy in plant medicine ceremonies. It's not talked about a lot, but people die. People go crazy. People kill themselves. People snap and never come back. In my particular case, I knew I was ready. Somebody said the other day, if you're asking people if you should do a plant medicine ceremony, you shouldn't do a plant medicine ceremony. If you're supposed to do one, you will know definitively. So that's what I'll say about that. Thanks for sharing all that and getting vulnerable and sharing about like how that experience like helped to create the Khalil 4.0. And I imagine that when you first got sober, you never thought in your wildest dreams you'd be where you're at today. I'm sure you obviously had some aspirations, but you never thought you'd be where you are today. Like, what do you say to somebody who's in that position where they're at the beginning stages of transforming their life and they're like, like, what's the point of this? Like, am I ever going to have success? Like, I don't even know where I'm going to be in five years, 10 years. Like, like, what do you say to somebody who's like in those early stages of trying to begin this transformation? God, you have no idea. You have no idea the amazing, amazing, amazing fucking life that waits for you. That's right outside your comfort zone, coupled with long-term sobriety. Now, I do have to say, a lot of the people that I went to treatment with and a lot of the people that I went to sober living with were 10 times, 100 times more talented than me, younger than me, better looking than me, taller than me, smarter than me. They're dead. They're dead. 
because they took that grace of God for granted. Long-term sobriety is paramount for success. Intelligence is not. Skills are not. You do not have to be smart. You do not have to be skilled. You do not have to be talented to become massively successful. If you are an addict, you do need to be sober and it needs to be long-term sobriety. And I hope someone is not out there going, well, fucking, he did fucking plant medicine. So yeah, at 17 years, clean and sober, I made a decision which could have ended my life. And luckily it didn't. And luckily I found great value in it. But long-term, if you just stay sober long enough and you're willing to get outside your comfort zone and you're willing to become 1% better every day, not 10% better. Don't go join the gym and work out for three hours and then you're sore for 10 days and you never go back. Don't decide, oh, I'm going to fucking quit smoking tomorrow and I'm going to run a marathon because that was the stupid shit that I did when I was newly sober. It's tiny little incremental changes practiced over a sustained period of time will bring about monumental results in your life. Look, I'm 53. At 33, I was a fucking loser. I had... 30, 60, 90 days sober. And then I turned 34. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. And the other thing that I, I forgot to mention. So when I raised my hand at that 12 step meeting up at Sarah retreat, and I said, I need work. One of the guys that came up to me afterwards and said, Hey, you really want work? I'm like, yeah, you're really going to work. I'm like, yeah, I'll fucking do anything. He's like, meet me at Starbucks tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. Don't be late. I was there at 6.30 a.m. I couldn't sleep back then. I wasn't getting up early because I was cool. I couldn't fucking sleep. You know? <laughs> Didn't have the dope in me. Couldn't sleep very well. So he took me up into Bel Air and I did like some just handy work for him. Just like basically I was a laborer. And at the end of the day, he dropped me back off of that Starbucks and he handed me $100. And I just looked at that hundred, that honest $100 that I had earned and uh, I was like, wow, thank you. And he goes, thank you. If you want to work tomorrow, same routine. And I got out of his van and I went over to Malibu Kitchen and I ordered a tuna salad on a toasted seeded baguette with Swiss cheese and mustard and all the fixings. And I had to be real careful because my teeth were falling out that time. My teeth were still really brittle. But I got that sandwich and I held it up to my face, the sandwich that I had paid for with money that I had worked for, money that I had earned. And before I could even take a bite, I just fucking started crying. I just started crying. I'm like, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. I can do that. And I can do that as long as I can have this, like, I'm going to be okay. I still thought I had AIDS. I still thought I had hep C. I hadn't been tested yet. You know, I still had challenges ahead of me, but it was a beautiful moment. And again, 15 years later, you know, I'm working, I got the recovery thing. I got the, I want to open up a yoga studio. So there's this guy that I knew from the program and he was, he could make anything, he could do anything. And we had to work at night, long story, but we had to work at night because I couldn't get permits to open it, to do the remodel. So we just put the cardboard on the window and we fucking did it. And I paid him really well and we're fucking laughing. And every day he would come in and he'd get a Wolverine and this just shows you like how like unaware I am sometimes. So we get it done and he's like, you know, if you need anything else done, I'm like, yeah, I need to get some tables done. I need to build these tables, whatever, for the different Sun Life stores. And one day he just, he's drinking his Wolverine. He looks at me, his name's Daryl Cobb. He looks at me and he goes, man, did you ever think when I picked you up that first morning at Starbucks that you would do, dude, 
I literally, I forgot. I got to know him over time and I just conveniently forgot that he was the first guy to give me an honest day's work. And man, I got fucking choked up. I was like, wow. And he goes, you're rich. You did it. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I did it. I got like, you know, fucking tears welled up in my eyes. And I was like, holy shit, I forgot, dude. And he's like, I didn't. I've watched you work and work and work and rise up out of your fucking adversity. And Daryl, we talk all the time, almost daily now. He builds all the stands for all my fancy crystals. If you go into Sunlight Organics, I have all these amazing crystals that I collect. And he builds me the stands for all the crystals and he makes the tables for every store. And life is fucking beautiful. It's not about being a millionaire. It's not about like hanging out with famous people. That stuff is cool. That's 10% of it. But the 90% of it truly is being self-supporting through your own contributions. And if you really want to, if you're really willing to get out of your comfort zone, if you're really willing to get 1% better every day, because if I get 1% better every day, by the end of the year, I'm 365% better, right? That's a lot better. But what if I keep doing that and then compounding sets in? I think now at this point in my life, I did the math. I'm 17,000% better than when I was when I first got sober. I'm 17,000% better. I am stronger. I am faster. I am happier. I obviously am more successful, but like the sky is the fucking limit. And I'm just scratching the surface at 53 years old. So my God, if you're just getting sober, I would imagine most of you are probably a lot younger than me because I'm 53. Just fake it till you make it. Raise your hand, ask for help. Get 1% better every day. Don't put pressure on yourself. Don't think you need a career at 35. You don't need a fucking career. You need a McJob. Go get a job at a coffee shop. Go get a job at a rehab. Go get a job painting houses or whatever. Work begets work and momentum builds and compounding sets in. And eventually you'll find your way. 19, almost 20 years ago, did I think that I'd be making fucking smoothies for a living? Fuck no. I still had fantasies about getting back together with Dwayne and Orby and those guys and becoming a rock star, becoming a rock star. Dwayne, who you know, makes music because he's a musician. That's what musicians do. Me, as a fucking broken, sad child from Ohio, wanted to be the lead singer rock star because I wanted validation. That is a shitty motivation. And thank God I didn't actually achieve it because I'd be fucking dead. But instead I get to play with my cats, have dinner with one of my best friends tonight, who's a man of God and an amazing father and an amazing husband. And I get to learn from him. I get to employ all these people. I get to meet cool people like you and hopefully spread a message of hope. My book has done insane. It's selling all over the fucking world. And I have an amazing life because I stopped worrying about following my passion. And I started thinking about finding my purpose. I found my purpose. My purpose is to inspire people. My purpose is to love people and help people to heal themselves. And it's fucking amazing. It's amazing. And if a dummy like me can do it, anybody can do it. It's amazing. And speaking of inspirational, I think all the listeners are going to be inspired by your story and what you've said and what you've overcome. So Khalil, I wanted to thank you once again for coming on the podcast. If people want to connect with you online, if they want to learn more about like Sun Life Organics and maybe try to visit one of the locations, where's the best place to do that? 
there's locations all over California, Malibu, West Hollywood, Century City. There's one at USC on campus. There's one up in Marin in San Francisco, South Beach, Miami, Las Vegas, a couple here in Texas. I think we're doing San Diego and Chicago next. You can find me on Instagram. I might inspire you. I might offend you. I don't have a filter. All I can do is be me. All I can do is do my dance. And if that pleases you, great. If that doesn't please you, that's great too. I don't know how much time I have left on this planet, but I want everybody out there to know that they can do and be and become anything they want, anything they want. You just got to do the fucking work. I know that sounds so cliched and it sounds much more difficult than it actually is. And all the smart people that you see out there that are super successful and you think, oh God, well, I could never be that. I could never do that. That's what I used to say to myself. But you know what? It's the caterpillar, the ugly, gross caterpillar crawling along the twig that looks up at the butterfly and goes, oh my God, if I could only be that, if I could only fly, if I could only be beautiful like that, wouldn't life be perfect? Wouldn't life be amazing? Not knowing the whole time that they are that butterfly. All they have to do is learn to go within, build some self-awareness, create your own chrysalis, sit still, listen to the sound of your breath, quiet your mind, Give yourself permission to dream again. Write down your goals, a one-year, a three-year, and a five-year plan. Get as specific as you possibly can. Bob Forrest made me write down my 10 dreams that I wanted to achieve in my life. Dude, I'm going to dig it out. I'm going to text it to you sometime because I still have it. It's so embarrassingly sad. Like, I want an apartment. Like, I was selling myself so short. And we all do. We all do. We can do and be and become anything. We are the fucking butterfly. We are the fucking butterfly. We just got to go within. That's a great place for us to leave it, man. And I will definitely be sure to include the link to connect with you online and more about Sun Life Organics. And Khalil, I want to thank you once again for coming on. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. We covered so much ground and maybe it was something that Khalil said about his story or his healing journey, or maybe it was his motivational words of wisdom. Whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag him and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.